joining me for the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode three. This is your host, Chris Blanchard. We've got a great episode for you today with my guest, Alan Philo. Alan spent a number of years working on some very interesting farms. Now he works as a soils consultant specializing in diversified vegetable farms with Midwestern Bioag, a biological farming company based out of Blue Mounds, Wisconsin. Alan has a really down-to-earth way of explaining the way soils and plants work together to make great food. The other really cool thing about Alan is he used to be a monk. He was actually a farming monk, and that's, uh, well, we're going to get into that later on in the show. <laughs> well, I'm really happy to be here uh, today talking to you. And, and the way that I originally kind of got started with agriculture was not the way that you would expect. I, I grew up in central Iowa, you know, just surrounded by, um, you know, just thousands and thousands of acres of agriculture and didn't have anything to do with it. You know, growing up like so many other people, uh, I think in my generation, uh, kind of what happened is, you know, we're, we're like a generation removed from the farm, you know, like my, my mom's generation didn't farm, but if you go one generation back from that, well, we were still on like the, the farm that are, uh, that we settled on when we first moved out to Iowa, but I didn't grow up doing anything with farming. And so here I am in the middle of like this absolutely gorgeous agricultural, uh, setting and I ended up having to move to West Virginia to start learning about farming, which is not, you know, the first place that comes to mind when you start thinking about agriculture and, and farming. And so what, what it was, was that I actually um, was at a monastery for about five years. And as part of what I was doing there, I got put in charge of a couple different things. And one of them was uh, the monastery garden. And the other one was our monastery uh, goat herd. And because we milked goats and we made goat's milk soap and I started making cheese and I started just um, reading everything I could possibly get my hands on about the soil because and, and how soil worked and how farming worked because the soil out there, of course, is really different from what we have here in the Midwest. It ain't Iowa, that's for sure. <laughs> no, it's definitely not Iowa. You know, Iowa, what I tell people is where I grew up, if I went to my backyard and dug you know, I couldn't ever figure out why somebody would go buy potting soil, you know, because you, that was what you would dig up in the backyard. And so it's just like this disconnect in my head between, I don't understand what this whole potting soil industry is about when that's what soil is in the backyard. And right. Never realized how great that was until I got to West Virginia. And I realized that the, what you have out there is this it's very old, old, highly weathered soil that's also been highly eroded and it's like red clay and it's impossible to dig through and it 
it, you know, it's, it becomes waterlogged really easily. And so that kind of started me on this whole journey about, well, how do I understand why that soil I grew up on is so different from this soil that I'm, I'm out here on. And, and one of the first books I ever got a hold of was John Jevons book, how to grow more vegetables on less land than you ever imagined possible. Right. And this, uh, it's a great book. And actually when people ask me for books to read, that's one of the books I often recommend to them if they haven't done a lot of reading, because it gives you this, um, even though some of the things in that book might not be totally technically correct, it gives you this really great starting place on um, how soils work, how soil testing works, propagation techniques, planting techniques, some of the math just involved in how you figure out, you know, square feet, area, acres, et cetera. It really, it really is kind of packed with, I mean, it, I started with that book too. That was one of the two that I began with when I started working in, in agriculture. And, and it really is just, it's packed with everything. I mean, it's got all of the details and all the nitty gritty about, you know, even like down to how long do you water and what do you look for on the surface of the soil before you know oh, that yeah. it's time to quit watering. I mean, those kinds of details that are just invaluable. And I didn't think about it from the soil's perspective, but obviously you did. Well, and, and I think a lot of it that really spoke to me was, you know, he talks about these farms that they start with in California that are on these heavy clays and what they're able to do with them over time to get them to be these highly productive soils. And I was like, oh, well, I have heavy clay. And so this is really applicable to me. But I, I mean, even when I go out to plant like my little home garden, um, I still get out the charts in the back of that book for my spacing. You know, because I use his, I use five by 20 beds for my home garden. And so I still have that book. It's, it's by now it's all ratty and it's dirty and has water stains all over it. Cause I have it out in the garden with me. And, um, but I still use that book. And that was, that was one of the first books I really, um, latched onto. And, and then I, I basically just started going through like the acres library and I had like the Moses library and I would just order books and, and just read all these books. And I was also doing, you know, the goats, um, and studying grazing. And so another great book, if you're into grazing this foundational book, um, by Andre Voisin, as uh, this French biochemist in the like 1930s. And the book is called grass productivity. And it's still the foundational book about anything having to do with rotational grazing. Um, but it, it's beautifully laid out. It's very easy to read and understand. And so that's kind of, I just started educating myself about, you know, these different practices that you could do, how to make compost, um, you know, how to do tillage properly, uh, what cover crops do to the soil. And, um, then it just, I was at the monastery for about five years and got to this point where I decided that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I moved back to the Midwest and it wasn't the greatest time to move back to the Midwest. Hold on, on, Alan. I, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt here because I mean, it's a, it's a farming show, but it's also about people, you know, I mean, I think about being in a monastery. That's, it doesn't (laughs) feel to me like that's like the kind of thing that you're just like, Oh yeah. You know, I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. I mean, when you were there, were you like, I mean, were you a monk or were you just living at the monastery? No, I was a monk. I, I never took final vows, but, um, it was an Eastern Orthodox monastery. Um, and so what I was, was technically it's called a Rasafor monk. So it's sort of like you're, you're, uh, uh, you're not 
like a novice. You're not just there for a little bit. Like you've been there for about three or four years, but you haven't necessarily decided that this is, you know, that you're going to make the commitment to stay here for the rest of your life. So I was kind of in this intermediate stage, but it just, you know, and, and that's the reason that uh, you don't necessarily take final vows you know, right away is that you, you stay in the monastery and you kind of enter this interim period where you're given a lot more responsibility. And it just kind of got to this point where I was like, you know, I, I just don't think this is what I want to do with my life. So, um, it was, it was time to move on. And I just, I moved back to the Midwest where my family was located. So, um, that that's the that's the short okay, version. Great. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we could do a whole show on this, but I don't think that would be you know. Well, we'd be probably pretty far outside of the agricultural realm by then. So I, I think I think we probably would. Although, if you ever wanted to get into uh, the whole history of the effect of monasteries and monasticism about of farming and keeping farming traditions alive, especially through the dark ages, is actually if you wanted to do some sort of historical historical podcast. That's pretty fascinating. But um, I moved back to the Midwest. wasn't the greatest time to do that. It was 2008, right, wh- right when the recession was starting. And um, just moved back and started looking for a job and had learned enough and taught myself enough that a position at Gardens of Egan, uh, which is a, a large, um, you know, a fairly large organic wholesale vegetable farm just south of uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, they had a position open for a field operations manager, um, which basically meant they needed somebody to come down and kind of like manage tillage operations, planning, cover cropping, and fertility. And um, I was like, well, I'll, I'll take a shot. And I, I filled out the job application and Linda Holly, um, who's still the, the farm manager there had this whole series of questions that she asked about different things like what does sustainability mean to you? And, and, um, you know, I just, I wrote these fairly long responses to this, these questions. And before I knew it, Linda called me and, and offered me the job, which was, um, very generous on her end because living in West Virginia, I had taught myself a lot about these various things, but, um, and you know, I ran a tractor and all sorts of equipment out there, but I had, I had never run, you know, like big tillage equipment, you know, getting on, on top of a tractor and running like an 18 foot disc was not something I had done before. So yeah, I feel like she kind of made a leap of faith with me, but, um, I, I, you know, I, I applied myself and I learned fast and, and, um, got to this, you know, what I was really doing there was, was managing, um, you know, basically like we had about 60 different fields and we had about 12 different crops. And this and is on uh, the, how can, can you remind me how big gardens of Egan is or, or was at that point? So at that point they've moved since I was there and, um, the farm that they were farming at the time was, uh, the original gardens of Egan farm. Well, not the original gardens of Egan farm. It was actually the second iteration of gardens of Egan that Martin and, uh, Atina Diffley had created once they were kind of developed out of Egan, they moved down to Northfield. And so, um, they had purchased about a hundred acres Okay, and there was about 60 acres that were tilled. And I would say of that about 50 acres cropped in a given season. Um, it's been a little bit of time since I've seen those figures, but, um, so we, we were, I was managing, you know, probably what was 
you know, easily 40 to 50 fields um, of all varying sizes, 12 different crops, um, uh, you know, sequentially planted throughout the, the year because you know, we were a wholesale operation. So what we were doing was, um, you know, trying to make sure that we always had enough to do like 160, 20 pound boxes of broccoli, you know, a week or twice a week at the height of the season and to be able to ship that out. So, you know, we would, that operation, we started planting broccoli like April 18th and we, we did our final planting of broccoli, I think sometime in early July. Okay. And, you know, at harvest broccoli, I'm, I'm picking on broccoli cause that was one of our main crops and that's the easiest one to kind of use as a gauge, uh, in my mind for how the timing of the season worked. And so we were picking broccoli basically from sometime in June all the way up to Thanksgiving. Um, and so that was kind of, that was a pretty complex system to kind of get your head around to make sure that, uh, you know, we're going to be planting five or six more fields over here next week. And, um, but we still want to have all this ground covered with like a cover crop and what cover crop is going to be the best cover crop for this crop that's coming up. And what are we going to plant there like two years from now? You know, it, it really taught me a lot about, oh, I have to be thinking like two to five years ahead on all this ground in order to make these rotations work and to avoid diseases and to, um, you know, reduce pest pressures and to make sure the fertility is right. Right. And at that, yeah. And at that time, um, I also started working with Mike Loveland from Midwestern Bioag and Linda had a long relationship with Gary Zimmer, um, the founder of Midwestern Bioag, because when, when she was at Harmony Valley, you know, he, Gary was the, was basically their soils consultant, their soils and fertility consultant. Right. And so she had this very long relationship with him. And so when I got there, uh, she, she put me, uh, in, she just said, well, you're, you're Mike Loveland's contact. And every once in a while, Gary would kind of show up on the farm. Um, you know, cause he, he knew him and Linda are good friends and, and he was kind of curious about what was happening out there. And sometimes he'd just show up to talk to Martin and Atina who were still living on the farm. And, and, um, whenever he would come by, I would, I would grab him <laughs> and I'd be like, come on, we have to go like, look at different stuff in the field. Cause I was like, here's this guy that is really well respected. You know, one of the first things I did once I got to gardens of vegan was read Gary's books. Right. Um, yeah. Cause uh, I mean, he, he is kind of the, he's the guy when it comes yeah. to this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the biological farmer was the one he had out at the time. And since then he's published advancing biological farming. And so w- what ended up happening was I, I started to kind of get to know Gary, but then Mike Loveland really got interested in what I was doing with cover crops because I, I kind of got to go crazy at gardens of vegan. I just got to experiment with all these different things because you know, there were a couple of things that had been done there for a long time, like using hairy vetch or using some, you know, annual cereal rye in the winter to do some soil stabilization. But, you know, there was a decent amount of the farm that was bare going into winter. And um, we weren't doing a lot with having like some set aside ground that was just going to get like rebuilt for a year, you know. So I was really getting to experiment with a lot of different mixes. And Mike Loveland asked me, if I would come over and just talk about what I was doing with cover crops at one of these like consultant meetings. So these are, these are meetings that Midwestern Bioag has basically to just help train consultants. And they like to bring 
farmers or people um, from outside the company in to just talk about what they're doing and, and their perspective on things. A little things. bit of cross-pollination and, and fertilization of their own there. Right. And so I, um, I was like, oh, okay, I'll come over and do that. And, and um, that was the after the first year that I was working at GUE. And so I, I traveled over there and I spoke and it re- really well and had some really long conversations with Gary at Gary Zimmer at that point and just kind of kept this thing going where um, he was kind of like, you know, if you ever want to come over here and, and work for me, we really need somebody that understands and does things with vegetables because their, you know, Midwestern Bioag's foundation was really in like dairy nutrition, working with alfalfa um, and, you know, and then row crops. Right. And selling and, and really thinking about things in terms of, uh, of, of fairly, what, what have oftentimes been fairly low margin enterprises with, with pallet loads of fertilizer being shipped <laughs> to them or truckloads even. Yeah. And, you know, and fairly like easy to understand operations. I mean, right. a dairy farm is probably like the most complex you're going to get in a sense because, well, you know, maybe the guy's going to have, he's got alfalfa, he's got some, you know, alfalfa that's going to, uh, maybe go for hay or baleage, and then he's got a, a pasture system over here, and he's going to be making some corn silage, and then he's maybe got some regular field corn, and maybe he's doing some soybeans. You know, so maybe you're up to like four different things, but actually, if you look at it, some of those things are are pretty similar. Right. Pasture and alfalfa. That you know, you're getting uh, kind of similar there. The difference between corn silage and like regular field corn is not that huge. Um, in terms of planting time and things like that. So, you know, that, that's a fairly easy system to wrap your head around. And, you know, he was kind of always like, I don't know, we kind of don't, don't know what to do with some of these operations, like a, like a CSA operation or just a market farm where you've got five acres and 40 different vegetables and 120 different varieties. You know, it's like, Oh my gosh, what do you do with that? How do you, start wrapping your head around those kind of fertility needs. And we're going to talk about that. That's, that's coming up here. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're, we're going to get into that. So, um, so he, he kind of always kind of intimated to me, like you can come over here and, um, at some point and be interested in hiring you. And so it just kind of, um, in the, in the interim there, I got married and, um, we were at a point where we wanted to start a family I'd worked for about three years at Gardens of Eden. And I, I think part of it too is I didn't want to take Gary up on his offers too soon because I felt like there was a lot more I had to learn in order to be able to be out there giving other people advice. But that sort of also happened um, kind of organically in a way because Mike Loveland started, ended up getting these calls um, like from Featherstone Farms, um, Jack Hayden. And he was, he was just kind of like, I, I kind of don't feel like I should be down there on my own. Would you just be willing to do some independent consulting down here? Because in the meantime, Gary had also offered to send me through their like training program for free, which is just because Gary Zimmer is a very generous guy. And so I went over there for a week and I went through MBA's training program. And so Mike felt like he could call me because I was somebody that already understood what MBA was going to be doing. And so I ended up like going down there not working for Midwestern Bioag, but already starting to do some consulting, um, you know, at Featherstone Farms. And so that was a real natural segue into finally just taking a job with Midwestern Bioag because I was already starting to work with some of their clientele um, 
on a, on a private basis. Right. So, so it came over and, and since then, um, so that was about, uh, three years ago, um, now that that's happened. And, um, you know, since then the first year or two was really just kind of get, getting, uh, my feet under me and, and getting to know, you know, the CSA farming community. Um, you know, I travel everywhere from, you know, the twin cities all the way over to Ontario, um, working with different farms and acting as really a support person for, um, it, over a large part of that area, I'm a support person for our consultants, but I handle personally a lot of the like CSAs and market farms that we deal with around the Madison area and all the way up kind of towards the twin cities a little bit. So, um, a lot of what I've been doing in that time is really just trying to develop a better way for us to work with these, um, small farms and also to develop easy systems for farmers to use, uh, to be able to understand and think about what the fertility needs are on their farm. And, Especially and, um, in these really complex situations. Right. Yeah. Especially in these really complex situations. And then in addition to that, uh, Midwestern Bioag asked me to go back and actually like finish a degree um, in the agricultural field. So I'm doing that simultaneously as well. So I'm actually um, presently in my about last year and a half of schooling at um, University of Wisconsin uh, Madison campus for the soils degree. So that's been going on all at the same time. Wow. So yeah. So that, <laughs> oh, and did I also mention that in the meantime, we bought a farm? Um, because of course, cause you know, you didn't have enough course. else on your plate. That's right. But you know, I, sometimes people ask like, um, you know, why, why is it that you're doing all this? And it's really funny because in the end, you know, this all gets started because what you want is a farm. You know, and for me, it's, it's also, it goes one step further. I want to farm with horses, you know? So it's like, when you look back at what, what's the root cause of all these decisions that led me to become like an MBA consultant and send me back to school. Well, it's all because I'm trying to do these things that will allow me to farm. Right. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so finally we get the farm and then you're like, Oh, I don't have any time to farm. But uh, we, we moved in there about a year ago and just spent a lot of time like working on the house. And this next year, we're just going to, um, you know, be, um, uh, be increasing. We're going to be doing a, a small layer hen operation Very cool. um, in conjunction with like a friend of mine, um, who's farming in the area, John Middleton and, 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 uh, Luigi Dunge from Fazenda Boatera. Um, they're, uh, they have a CSA operation. We're going to provide some eggs for them and then we're going to do some pigs. And, you know, that's kind of going to be the extent of that. And then we're, we're working on bringing the ground back under, under, uh, under tillage and probably trying to get a, a long-term like hay stand established on my tillable acreage. And that's a whole nother thing. So we got a lot going on, but you know, it's all around agriculture. It's all around soils. Um, and, while I've personally made the decision that I probably will never farm vegetables, you know, that is what my role is at Midwestern Bioag is working with vegetable farmers and specialty crop farmers and trying to help people understand those, those needs. And yeah. So, I mean, one of the things, I mean, you just, you just brought this up. I mean, vegetable farmers have special needs around fertility that are different than what you would run into with a, with a, with a, a row crop type operation or a dairy type operation. 
what are the top challenges that you're seeing for vegetable growers and, and, and what are the, what are the ways that they're meeting those? So one of the first things is honestly just the complexity of the operations. Um, when you get to those kind of numbers, you know, I don't care if you've got 120 acres or you have five acres, if you're going to be growing, you know, 40 different vegetables, um, you can't run 40 different fertility regimes, you know, because each of these plants kind of has its own, its own fertility needs. I mean, to just give you an example, um, you look at what, and, and the numbers I'm going to be quoting here, are like assuming that you don't have any fertility in your soil, let's say you were just going to grow on sand, but that's a really great way to think about this, to compare one plant to another, right? Okay. So if I'm going to go uh, plant like broccoli or sweet corn, which are actually very similar to get that crop, I'm going to need somewhere between like hundred to 150 pounds of nitrogen, you know, 40 to 60 pounds of phosphorus per acre per acre. Yeah. And, you know, somewhere around 120 to 150 pounds of potassium. That's what it's going to be required to grow that crop. But then you turn around and you look at something like a tomato plant. Well, some of those needs look pretty similar. Maybe 120 to 150 pounds of nitrogen per acre, 40 to 80 pounds of phosphorus. But then you look at the potassium needs and the potassium needs are 300 pounds per acre. So they're double, almost triple what like the broccoli or sweet corn needs are. Right. And there's a lot of like little subtle variations, even, even between plants that are, you know, fairly similar. Um, um, like, so, so I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. So one of the first things that I, you know, try to do with farmers is to get them to understand, like you can't handle, you know, 40 different crops. You, you can't think of it as 40 different crops. We, we got to condense this down. And most of those crops belong to crop families that have fairly similar nutrient needs. Your brassicas so, or your solanaceous or. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and even some of the crops that maybe aren't in what we would consider the same crop family, they're similar types of crops. And so they have similar needs. Greens, a lot of root crops have very similar nutrient needs, even though they're Carrots and rutabagas aren't in the same family, but they have very similar needs. So um, that that's one of the first things to do. So we try to divide it up. And, and the way I divide it up is, is, you already mentioned a couple of them, brassicas, solanaceous, cucurbits, greens, um, root crops. Sometimes if people are growing a lot of them, I'll separate alliums out as a separate um, cropping family. And then you have a couple kind of like weird outliers, like potatoes, even they, even though they're technically a solanaceous plant, don't behave like the other solanaceous plants. So run a kind of a different fertility program for potatoes, but already what that kind of does is it gets you from 40 different thinking of trying to think of 40 different things. to only thinking of seven or eight. Now that's a lot easier to wrap your head around. Right. So yeah, that, that, yeah. And that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense that you would look at it that way. And so that's, that's kind of the first level. Um, oh, cucurbits. I don't know if I mentioned cucurbits. Cucurbits are in there as well. And that cucurbits are actually a really interesting one to kind of get into a little bit. You know, there are still some subtle variations, even within these families, you'll get these, um, cucumbers don't need like as much potassium or even really as much nitrogen as if you say watermelons do. And that's because these plants are, um, 
it, it's the way the plants and the fruits that you're harvesting are really different in their makeup. You know, you think like when I bite into a cucumber, there's a little bit of sweetness there, but there aren't really like, it's not like I'm eating a melon. Yeah. Right? Well, right. And there's no seeds there. I mean, you might have little pips, but you're not, you're not having fully developed seeds like you do in a watermelon either. Right. Right. And so these differences in the things that we're actually tasting in, even inside this similar crop family are actually indicative of some of the different nutrient needs of these plants. And I'll, I'll get, I, I think a little bit later on here, we'll, we'll get into a little bit of some of the plant physiology where when you really start to dig into it, there are even ways that you can think about, you know, here's, here's what this plant tastes like. Here's what this, here's what I'm harvesting. This directly relates to the nutrient needs of the plants. You know, back to this, just trying to divide things up. One of the nice things is, is once we get things down to this uh, level of, okay, maybe we only have like seven different uh, families to think of. Um, what you start to notice is even that those families, some of those families are, are really closely related, um, in the ratios of the nutrient needs. So when I say ratios of the nutrient needs, I'm talking a lot about like how much nitrogen does the plant need compared to the amount of potassium the plant needs. Right. Right. So back to the broccoli, um, tomato comparison, broccoli kind of needs nitrogen to potassium at about a one to one ratio, about 150 pounds, 120 pounds of nitrogen, about 120 pounds of potassium, right? Right. One to one. Right. You look at tomatoes, hundred to 120 pounds of nitrogen, 300 pounds of potassium. That's one to three. And what you'll notice is that the plants also in these plant families kind of divide themselves up into most things want that one-to-one ratio. And then there's a few things, and they're almost all in the solanaceous family, that need that one-to-three. And so that gives us another way to, to think about how you're going to, you know, do fertility. Because that kind of gets to the point now where now instead of having, say, let's say I was going to make like a different fertil- blend of fertility for every single vegetable. Well, we went from 40 to 7, and now we're at 2. Right. right. You can use one thing to fertilize these things that need one to one and one thing that needs a one to three. And that I think it was about when I got to that, I realized, oh, this is actually doable. Like we can we can really give farmers targeted fertility towards the actual plant needs. If I think of it in this way. Now, Alan, I don't, and, I don't want to take you and, and, and veer you off here, but when you, when you talk about the, the fertility, now that's different than the soil building, right? You guys at, at Midwest Biog, you kind of, you kind of think of those as two separate processes. Is that correct? That's, yeah, that's right. And, and that actually gets to another really interesting point, like another big challenge. Well, I'll, I'm going to talk about this challenge first and then I'll, then I'll do a better job of answering your question. One of the other big challenges when you're dealing with a lot of vegetable crops is, is the root zone on vegetable crops. Like, so if you think of like a corn crop, there's this really great, uh, I, I wish, of course, this is a podcast, so you guys can't see this, but I wish that there was a way to share with everybody. There's this uh, corn plant um, in one of the rooms, in, in one of the main uh, soils instruction rooms at the University of Wisconsin that was dug up by F.H. King, who, um, if you ever want to read a book that'll really change the way you look at agriculture, read F.H. King's Farmers of 40 Centuries. Great book. 
Uh, it's a great book. Um, and he was one of the founding soils professors uh, at the University of Wisconsin. And he travels around the Middle East and the, uh, or not the Middle East, the Far East, looking at agriculture in China, Korea, and Japan. And the reason the book has that title is because those people successfully farmed those soils for 4,000 years without depleting them. And it's kind of like the first, one of the first forays into ideas about sustainability and what, what it takes to keep a soil functioning for a long period of time. So that's a great book. So we, we have this corn plant that he dug up and you look at this root system on the corn plant and this root system is like three or four feet deep, right? So this corn plant is able to access nutrients and water up to this very deep depth. And, and it's a very big uh, root system. But I think if it, uh, for the farmers that are listening to this, if you think about like pull up a lettuce plant, you know, it does not there's have, nothing there there's nothing there um or even worse like pull up an onion you know there's there's like no root system there and maybe if you're lucky it gets to six inches and so that's one of the things is and and this is uh, deals some with plant breeding because um, a lot of times it seems like what happens is, is we select for the kind of traits that we want for these plants to be like very edible palatable, tasting good, and easy to harvest for humans. One of the things that apparently we sometimes select for also is not really great root systems. Well, and, and frankly, in the, you know, in the plant breeding world, and I spent a, I spent a fair amount of time uh, in and around that world, they, they talk about the idea that you, you can only breed for so many things at once. You know, right. I mean, you, you can't, you can't select for everything all the time because a plant has to choose where it's going to put its energy. I mean, if it's going to put it into, into making sugars to taste yummy, it's going to be taste, it's going to be putting less energy into developing a, a really broad and deep root system. You know, and that, that's so, I know we're getting a little off topic here, but that you can see that exact thing happening with these grafted tomato plants that people are doing a lot with, because it, what they're trying to do is take two plants that were bred for two different purposes, right? And then, and then graft them together. So you can kind of get both of those traits in one thing. So it, we're growing, you know, we're taking like a, a root stock that has a very vigorously growing tomato root system, which a lot of tomatoes don't have, and we're grafting it onto a tomato plant that makes really good fruit because that plant that has a really good root system doesn't necessarily make the greatest fruit. Right. So there are things where people are trying to get around that, but this is a common thing with vegetables is that the root system that we're dealing with is not really a very good root system because we've selected for these other characteristics. And so that means that our fertility really ha in the field has to be like optimal in order for these plants to be able to grow optimally because they're not going to get themselves down really below six inches. And so when we think of soil building, um, you know, the, the first thing that we always do with farmers when we start talking fertility is we say, well, we need to go out there and do a soil test because we can't, you can't make any recommendations if you don't know, you know, what, what you have in the bank to begin with. And um, the things that I look at the most when I look at um, giving recommendations to a farmer 
is I'm going to look at what their phosphorus levels are in the soil. I'm going to look at what their potassium levels are in the soil. And if um, this varies a little bit if we get out of the Midwest, but if we're in the Midwest, I can already tell you that your trace minerals are probably going to be low, especially for what um, the vet, what vegetables actually need. And you're probably going to benefit from a little bit of supplemental calcium as well. And so... Um, so what we do is we take a look at where these like phosphorus and potassium numbers are in the soil test. And I want to fill that, you know, uh, bank up, uh, to optimal levels out there in the soil. And part of that is because I want two things to happen. One, I want the vegetables with their poor root systems to have access to absolutely optimal fertility. And two, when you balance the soil for what the plant needs optimally, you also often end up balancing it for what the biology in the soil needs optimally. Now, and again, when we're when we're talking about this, um, and 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 I have to admit, I I I feel like as a as a farmer, and and you know, I spent twenty years in the in the field. I I never really did a good job with the fertility and the and the soil side of things. I mean, I I I think we. I think we did okay, but when it came down to actually, you know, providing what the plant needed and providing the nutrients that the soil needed, I, I always felt like I just, I didn't get it. So I'm going to, I'm going to keep drill. I'm going to assume that everybody else has the same problem that I do. And, and I'm going to keep kind of drilling away at that. So when you're talking about balancing the soil and providing these optimum levels of, of phosphorus and optimum levels of potassium, you're really talking about this again from, from the the soil building standpoint, not from putting on, you know, putting on phosphorus for the broccoli. You're talking about putting it on to to make the soil so that it's so that you've got a foundation that you can now grow broccoli or tomatoes on with the addition of the right extra stuff. That that's, that's exactly right. Okay. And, and, but I think the other key there is, like I said, you know, what's really amazing is when you balance the soil optimally for, you know, what's going to be optimal plant growth, you also end up with, um, making it a really excellent environment for biology and biology is really key because, um, the soil biology, the soil microbiology, I mean, you have earthworms and things like that, but it's kind of this. Um, really interesting misconception out there that like earthworms are, you know, what is going to drive your soil fertility. If you, if you actually look at what has the biggest effect out there in the soil environment, it's actually microbes and, and microbiology is, is really your biggest driver of um, soil health factors and good aggregation and things like that. And so, so these things are linked, right? So if, if, um, if for some reason, the microbes in the soil are limited because of a nutrient, right? Because they don't have access to a nutrient. They're, you know, they're growing and developing just like the plants are. But the thing is, is these soil microbes are also what has control of uh, really that, that soil, um, the, the soil structure even. Um, the, the structure of the soil, the water infiltration, air infiltration, a lot of these things that we really need to be optimal too for the plants to grow. So there's, there's this link there. When we balance the soil optimally for what the plants need, we also balance it optimally for what these microbes need. And we allow for maximum, like, um, there's one other ingredient that you need too, but we're setting the stage for like really, um, really high levels of microbial growth and work in the soil to create the kind of, uh, 
like soil structure that we need to grow plants, um, the kind of plants that we want to grow to be able to harvest. So there's, there's a very deep intimate connection there. There's, there's one other, and then this is where, you know, when you say soil building, my mind kind of does two different things. What, what I've been talking about in my mind is like, that's a soil nutrient corrective. Alan, we're going to stop for a moment to thank our sponsors for today's show. Friends, the farmer to farmer podcast bandwidth is sponsored this month by second cup media. Second Cup Media provides technology assistance to farmers. They help farmers to help the world. They offer workshops, coaching sessions, and retreats to farmers looking for help with their online presence, marketing strategy, and their business tools. But they're not your typical consulting firm. They don't promise high return rates, and they don't really set out to offer quick and easy solutions. It can be a little bit frustrating when you go and say, I want this big, beautiful thing, and Tom and Christy say, Eh, let's scale that back. And by the way, it's going to take a little bit more work than you expected. But the results are really there. Because friends, technology is easy, but building relationships is hard, especially when you're wrapped up in farming. So they're there to help bridge the gap between the two and show farmers how to grow their business in today's tech-driven world. SecondCupMedia.com. Take time, take a look. And friends, the Farmer to Farmer podcast is also sponsored by Purple Pitchfork, where I provide consulting, coaching, and education dedicated to helping farmers and their farm businesses. The way I see it, Purple Pitchfork is another tool that farmers can use to help themselves be more effective in their fields, in their businesses, and in their communities. I got into agriculture because I wanted to change the world, and I'm convinced that that change is only going to happen when farms succeed in meeting the triple bottom line of people, profits, and the environment. I've worked with clients ranging from 1 to 160 acres of organic vegetables. I've worked with a grass-fed beef marketing company, with food hubs, and with economic development agencies, and I would be thrilled to have the chance to work with you. Head on over to purplepitchfork.com to find out more about the work that I do and the tools that we've got available to you. When you say soil building, what I'm usually thinking about is some sort of cover cropping regime that's going to be taking large amounts of carbon and plant matter and putting that back into the soil. And really here we're talking about about taking uh, letting letting cover crops grow until they're nearing maturity and then putting them back into the soil. We're not talking about plowing in, you know, six week old oats. No, no. Um, although you'd be amazed at what six-week-old oats can do uh, <laughs> for your for your soil. You know, knee-high oats can really. Um, there's a lot of energy in knee-high oats, and microbes can take those that energy and and as long as they have optimal growing conditions, and then we you know, and then we feed them. Um, basically the energy that's in the oats, that's when they can really do some amazing things to your soil structure and, and create a better, uh, create a much better soil environment for plant growth. Um, this is actually really interesting because this is actually, uh, what I'm going to be talking about at the Moses conference. Um, at the end of February, I'm, I'm going to be doing a whole talk that centers all on like an introduction to, um, soil kind of microbiology and soil health. And, and we're really going to go in depth during that time about how, how this all links up and works together. But the, the fertility side of it is, 
and the mineralization part of it really is a part of what needs to happen for optimal growth of these of these microbes and, and creating the system. And then the and then the cover crops and turning kind of energy down into the soil is what kind of drives that. And that sets the stage. Those are the things that I spend a lot of time working with farmers. Now now we're setting the stage so that we can um, get returns from when we fertilize a crop for a single growing season. Okay. And, and really, so, when, and again, when you talk about fertilizing that crop for the single growing season, you're basically talking about adding, adding to the soil, the things that, that, that when you harvest the broccoli are going to be turning around and leaving the soil. Yeah, that's, that's a really great way to think of it. It's really what you're doing is we are, we're replacing, um, we're going to, we're going to replace what that crop is taking away. So it's, it's kind of funny. I, I, um, I was up at a farm in Door County and, um, we had been invited back to this farm because they had used our program a couple years ago and then they didn't use it for a year. And they called us because they said, Oh, we, we really saw the results. Um, when we stopped using your, (laughs) your fertilizer, our yields declined. And, you know, we got their soil test out and we started looking at their soil test. And, and this is where a lot of this stuff kind of becomes counterintuitive. So their soil test, they had pretty low fertility numbers. They had low phosphorus, they had low potassium. And what I um, said to them is, well, of course our fertilizers gave you a response because you're at such a low level already. But my goal is to fill up the tank to the point where you don't notice the difference when you put the fertilizers in. Because what the fertilizers are doing is refilling what those plants already have access to and are going to leave with. Right. But you want, you want enough of a basis that, that, that if you didn't do it, it wouldn't in, in a year, it wouldn't matter, but it is that you want to continue to do it because that's, what's going to keep your tank full. Exactly. And, and then we get to cheat a little bit because we take with this crop replacement and we put it right in the root zone, right at planting time where the plants have access to it right away. And we call it crop fertilizer. Right. With their, with their little tiny six inch roots that they're able to, they're they're able to get it. Exactly. And so, and, and so that's kind of the approach that that's that full approach I take is, you know, there's this soil, we take a look at your soil test. We want to do the soil corrective to make sure that your optimal nutrient levels. And, and then we look at what your individual plant fertilizer needs are for, you know, for the, for that plant, for that growing season. And then we apply the fertilizer, you know, to make up for what's going to leave your farm. And that is how I, and we've had really good success and the farmers that I've been working with are really pleased with, with thinking of things in that way, because it also means, you know, this is just kind of interesting to note, you know, there's a lot of times where farms are really busy places, right? And no. we're at the, we ask, yeah. I know it's amazing, <laughs> but, but we're also at the mercy of weather. And we've had a lot, this last year was probably one of the best growing years we've had in a while. And the two years before that were just really difficult years for farmers to get in, you know, on, on schedule this year, we were delayed, you know, and, um, but then after that, the growing season was a, was a, was a pretty good growing season. At least that's, that's what I've heard from my farmers and what I saw in the field. But a lot of times, you know, you're looking at get out there. Sometimes people just don't have the time to make that extra pass to put down a fertilizer right at the beginning of the growing season. And and so, well, well, if you don't, if your crop, if your soil isn't already at an optimal level, well, you just shorted yourself. You know, how much money did you just lose because you didn't 
you know, you didn't apply that fertility if that isn't out there to help your crop grow to the optimal level. So also the, you know, with this optimal soil balancing thing, part of what this is getting you is almost like, it's almost like an insurance policy. You can almost think of it that way, right? Oh, if I can't get out there in the spring, I still know the groceries are out there and I can still go in later at the end of the season even and refill the tank. Okay. You know, well, and Alan, I mean, this is where too, I mean, when I, I also got a degree at the, at the university of Wisconsin and, and, you know, we took soils and we learned all about the importance of nitrogen and how volatile that is. So now you're, you're talking about being able to grow a crop, you know, you've got your balanced soil, you're able to grow the crop without adding the nitrogen to it before you, before you put that crop in the ground, where, when does that come in? Oh my gosh. That's a, this is a very complicated question. And that okay, would be the so one boil thing. it down for me here because I've been getting complicated <laughs> answers about this for 15 years and it's still, and, and I, I haven't been able to, to make it into something that makes sense. So, okay. So I think we need to define the question a little bit more. So you're asking, when is it that I need to get a nitrogen application in for my crop? Yeah, that's right. For, okay. for that first crop of broccoli, when it's been, you know, it's been too wet, you guys are putting it in the field on, on April 18th. You know, you just got into the field on April 15th. There's no time to run over the fertilizer. What, what do I, what do I do? Okay. So first, this is part of farm, like farm planning. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about what this looks like in, orga- in an organic system versus what this looks like in like a conventional system. Cause there's some pretty big differences there. So the first thing that I would say is if I was in an organic system, I, I personally was always making sure that that field was already prepped you know, with what those nitrogen needs were going to be the year before. But that's part, you can do that partially in, a, in an organic system because when you're applying nitrogen um, to a field, it's always in some other form. You know, it's it's nitrogen that's tied up in compost. Right. right? It's, it's wrapped up in a, it's, it's nitrogen inside of a little poop molecule. Basically, you're only going to get it out of a poop molecule. Okay. Um, so we've d- created a new kind of molecule today. Um, or, you know, like probably some of the more soluble forms would be, say, like in a feather meal or something right. like that. Um, but those are the things I'm only going to apply during the growing season. And so um, I, I'm already going to make sure that that because I know that that early field, I may not be able to get in with a nitrogen application. And that is the most volatile one. So my potassium levels could be really high. My phosphorus levels could be really high. Uh, my calcium could be good. My trace minerals could be right. Everything could be lined up, but I don't know what, you know, I, I need to make sure that it's got the nitrogen to carry through. So if I've like say applied enough compost the year before, I know that I'm, it's going to be there you know, at the beginning of the growing season. The other thing though, is that a lot of these crops, they don't necessarily need like a a shot of nitrogen, right. You know, as soon as they hit the soil, um, because the soil is all always releasing like a certain amount of nitrogen due to the organic matter levels in the soil and the way that those mineralize and release nitrogen to the crops, but they are going to need supplemental nitrogen, say when they hit their peak growth period. So you still have another opportunity there in which you could get out there and like say right as that broccoli hits the third to fifth leaf stage, you could go out there with something like a pelletized chicken manure or feather meal and you could put on another addition of a night basically a nitrogen fertilizer and that's going to boost that crop to to keep going. The optimal way in my opinion though to really run nitrogen fertility say on an organic farm 
is to link that nitrogen fertility up with what your cover cropping regime is. Because this to me is the best thing, right? Nitrogen is the only nutrient that I can get for free free in quotes, there's still work involved and there's still the cost of like purchasing the seed. But, you know, um, you can grow if, if you have a, a crop of hairy vetch, say that you plant in um, September um, after, after you've harvested last year's crop and you can let that go all the way to mid-May and you can disc that in, you've got 150 to 200 pounds of nitrogen out there okay, so. for the growing season. And so that's all that you, I mean, you've got everything you need to carry you through the growing season. And so, um, that's one of the things I also spend a lot of time, you know, working with people is to design cover cropping regimes that are going to allow them to use, to, to, to use legumes to build up their nitrogen levels. Which of course now, means you got to have enough room to plant the cover crops, you know, or, or good planning. You know, we did a lot with, um, it, it's amazing, uh, what you can do with like under sowing techniques. So, um, you can have, say you're growing, mm, um, even like melons and you're growing melons on plastic, but you've got a fairly decent amount of, of space in between all of these melons, um, you know, bare dirt and on some farms, well, you can seed that down with like a white clover mix, or we used to do that at final pass in most of our brassicas like cabbage or kale, you know, we would do our final cultivation and I would have see, I would have broadcast white clover seed out there. And so, what that does is that that white clover seed is going to catch and it's going to start growing and I'm going to go through and I'm going to harvest that cabbage field. And, and it's not that I have to suddenly plant that cabbage field to a cover crop. It's already out there. So a lot of this is about thinking about creative ways to work like a legume cover crop in as an underseeding or in some way that, uh, that you can get it in without taking too much, um, uh, w- w- without having the amount of growing time limited because of what is, was in the field. I think it does really mean though, you've got to have a cracker Jack weed control system then too, because if you're not, you know, if you, if you've got weeds out in that field, when those, when that broccoli or that cabbage is coming off, um, you know, now you've lost the ability if your cover crop's already there, you know, to, to till that stuff under, you've really got to have it be nice and clean when you're going in with that, with that under cover crop. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, Wayne Meissen, one of the other consultants I work with said the most profound thing I heard all year because he's, um, he said, you know what the, the, the biggest difference between a successful, uh, uh, vegetable operation is and an unsuccessful one is. And I said, what Wayne? And he said, weeds. weeds. And I was like, that is totally true because if you think about it, um, and, and I think this is really good. And, and I'm always a little bit worried to say this in front of farmers for fear of offending them. But honestly, like if you haven't figured out how to do weed control, then you shouldn't even be thinking about fertilizer because your, your weeds will outcompete your plants for fertilizer. Cause they've got those, they've got that big abundant root system that your lettuce plants don't. Right. Right. And, and so, and water and all the other things that you spend all your time managing on the farm. If you honestly, as a farmer, you know, it's, it's kind of like I, I have this triangle, this plant hierarchy triangle that I show people sometimes and it's the, you know, and the bottom of it is water. You know, it's kind of like, guess what, if you're a farmer and you haven't figured out how to water and get water to your crops, like you don't need to worry about fertility or anything else because you haven't done your first job, right? 
Right. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're doing dealing in the world of vegetables. Um, right. And I almost think that I need to put another bar in there that just says weeds because it's the same thing. Like, um, weed control is such an important issue on most organic farms. And it's a lot, I, I mean, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast, Chris, um, just weed control. But I don't, I don't think weed control is as difficult as people make it. Um, it becomes really difficult if you let weeds get away from you. But I, I'll, I'll, you know, I look back at, um, I think one of the, one of the things I learned when I was at Gardens of Egan was I learned about really good weed control. And, and I'm going to say that Martin Diffley was one of the guys that I have met in my life that is probably the very best at weed control. I mean, we had clean farms, uh, clean fields, incredibly clean fields. And we could do this with just one or two cultivation passes. And when I tell that to a lot of the farmers I work with, their, their jaws just kind of fall open, but it's about, you know, there's, there's a, it's an art form. There's a lot about timing, but there's a lot about even just how you adjust your cultivator. There's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of farms that are doing cultivation where what they end up doing with the cultivator is bringing up more seeds from the weed seed bank than they're killing weeds, you know? So there's a lot of subtleties in there, but weeds are this incredibly important indicator to me of uh, on a farm about Sometimes it's about how good the farmer is. If you walk onto a farm and that farm is clean and spotless, I know that this farm has it under control. And frankly, if they've got that under control, chances are they figured out fertility too. Right. You know, so these it's kind of funny. Those those things are all linked. But well, I but think I, I think it I think a lot of it comes down to and I, I had a farmer uh that I was corresponding with just the other day say, you know, that the, the Weed control, it's, it's not about the tools and the implements. It's about the management. It's about, it's about understanding where weed control fits in your farm and prioritizing it and making it happen at the right times. And, and like you said, with the right, with the right kinds of adjustments, I mean, I don't think it's about having a, a budding basket weeder versus having shovels and sweeps. It's about having those things adjusted correctly so that you, you're able to get a weed free field. Uh, I think. I think you're totally right. And you know, what's really funny is I could say the, I could say the same thing to a certain degree about fertility management because I could give you like all the, I can come onto a farm and I can give a farmer like all the recommendations, you know, the, the best recommendations I can come up with the best fertility program that I can give, give them. But if the farmer isn't out there, you know, being a careful observer about what's going on, um, being careful with their management of the way that they're going to ma- manage their cover cropping, uh, you know, scheme to get, you know, good amounts of nitrogen, then my recommendations could still easily fall flat, you know? Um, but it's because the recommendations might've been good, but the management wasn't there. And I think that's always, that's always the, you know, the, the best managers are always the one they're going to get it all right. They're going to get the weeds right. They're going to get the fertility right. And a lot of times it's this people with this like incredible attention to detail um, that, that I really respect because I don't, I don't always have it. Well, and, and Alan, I think the other thing, the other thing that goes with that is, I mean, the, 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 it's not that they're getting it all right all the time, but it's that they're getting, they're getting each of the pieces right enough of the time that when something gets missed, it's not a disaster. You know, um, I, I think that's, I mean, that's a lot of it. It's not like you have to be, it's not like being a straight A student, 
You know, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, you get, you can get all A's, you can get, a, you get A's in, in three classes and you get, and you get C's in two of them. As long as you're not consistently getting C's in the same class year after year after year, or, or <laughs> as long as you sometimes have that straight A semester, you know, things kind of balance out and you end up with a 3.8 or a 3.7 and, and you're okay. You know, yeah. I think it's when it's when you're not it's when you're you're not getting most things right most of the time. I want to take you back. You you just you started talking about this um, uh, triangle that you like to use around, you know, when you're talking about plants, talking about growing um, and you talked about water being at the base of the triangle. But you didn't right. tell us what were on the other two legs. And I'd be uh, irresponsible if I didn't come back and grab that. Well, so it, it, I want you to imagine what it is, is it's a triangle and it just has different bars. It doesn't have legs. It just has different bars going up. And so the idea here is like, unless you've done this level, you shouldn't proceed to the next level. Got it. And it, and it's also like on the basis of this is the first thing that a plant needs, right? Like it needs this before it needs this. Like if you, so, so it doesn't matter. So the, the first thing is water. The second thing is macronutrients. So nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium. But the idea here is I could have all the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium in the field that, that like it could be perfect, but if I don't have the water, that's meaningless. Right. Right. So that's kind of the idea here in this progression. So it's water and then it's macronutrients and then it's, and this is just fertility. I could do this with all sorts of other things. I could do it with, you know, soil health systems, organic matter, all sorts of things, but it's macronutrients and then it's micronutrients. And then at the very tip, the little tiny triangle at the top is extras. And what I mean by extras is the things that people think are going to be the silver bullets for their farm, but it's, the, and, and that they want to be the silver bullets for the farm because they haven't paid enough attention to the other things. But these are the things that can make up, like, they're kind of like finishing touches um, to, to a fertility system. And so this might be the addition of a little bit of, like, kelp into, you know, your transplant water. So if I'm on a farm where, say, they haven't done a good job with their macronutrient fertilization... They don't have, there's not enough phosphorus out there for the plant to grow. It doesn't matter if I put like a little bit of kelp as a root stimulant into the transplant water, right? Because it doesn't matter. The, the root's going to grow, but then there's nothing there for the root to access. Well, and I think, Alan, I mean, this is, I mean, maybe a broad generalization, but you talk about those extras as being, as being the silver bullets. They tend to be things that are... I think relatively easy to manage. Anytime that somebody's coming in and telling me that they've got a silver bullet solution, the the kelp in the transplanter water, or the you know that one perfect implement that all they've got to do is buy that one implement and that's <laughs> going to solve every problem on their farm, it it tends to be very simple solutions uh, and solutions that don't require a lot of management. It's not that hard to pour a little kelp in your in your uh, in your transplant right. water, uh, you know, paying attention to the fertility and, and getting the soil test done and ordering in the fertilizer and having the tools to spread it and, and paying attention to that year in and year out macros, micros, um, you know, that's something that does take a lot of, a lot of time and attention. Uh, and I think, I think that's almost, I all, I, I mean, I've, I've said to some of my clients before, when you, Anytime they start talking about a silver bullet solution, it means that there's another problem that they need to solve first. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that, that's kind of, and that's why I made that triangle was because I, I just I wanted it. a real visual way to basically say like, you know, and what I say is until you feel that you've adequately solved this problem or, or you're, 
willing to let somebody else come in and assess whether or not you've adequately solved this problem. Don't even think about the next one, you know? And, and I think one of the years I really saw that was, um, you know, the, uh, the drought year, the summer of 2012, 2012. Yeah. Yeah. You found out who the good managers were, you know, the, because they were, and I just want to say, I, sorry, I'm, I'm going to jump in here, but it's not, yeah. I mean, it wasn't just the good managers, but you know, what was so fascinating to me about 2012, the good managers made, it was their, it, they had record profitability. And it's because, yeah, and, and it was record profitability because, because the only missing key was water, but the environment actually cooperated. We don't have, it's something we forget. We live in the Midwest and this is actually not the greatest climate for growing most vegetables. Um, cause a lot of the vegetables that we grow actually are, are like desert origin or like really dry conditions. And they tend to get a lot of diseases when we don't have those dry conditions. And so what the environment did for us was it provided a huge amount of heat units and it provided, um, no, uh, no way for diseases to take root. And so, you know, what the, what it ended up being was if the management was good and you could manage the water, you had the perfect growing conditions. And I, and that, I saw that exact same thing. And, um, and also weed control got easy, right? Because well, it it was the closest thing to farming in California that, that we've seen in the Midwest for a hundred years. I mean, you know, when you wanted to weed, you could weed when you wanted to seed, you could seed. And, um, as long as you had the water to put on your crops, like you said, that was the only missing piece. And so if you, if you had made the investments in irrigation equipment and made the investments in irrigation systems, I mean, for managing that irrigation, and you had the water supply, you were golden that year. And, you know, and this is, this is one of the things I feel like, um, I don't, I I think maybe I don't even do a good enough job of this with, with, uh, farmers is letting people know that there's all sorts of resources out there, um, to help you do a better job with these things, free resources, a lot of times through the, like a, a local university. Um, so, you know, for instance, to, to kind of harp on this irrigation thing a little bit more, the amount of water that a plant needs per um, kilogram or per pound of dry matter that the plant produces is a pretty like straight up um, average number. And I think it's two, um, I might get this wrong, but I think it's 200 liters per kilogram right? Okay. So you need 200 liters for every one kilogram of dry matter that that plant is going to produce during the growing season. And like, um, and the university of Wisconsin has what is basically like a, an irrigation calculator that you can have access to. So you can figure out, okay, I like, this is exactly how much water these plants are going to need for this growing season. And, but and that's keep, that. Wait, that's how much water it's going to need once you've once you've satisfied the soil's need for the water, right? Well, right. And so that gets into some different ideas about what is the soil holding capacity and things like that. But most of the time, when we go in, like when we start out in the spring, our fields are at field capacity already. We're waiting for them to dry out, right? And so that for us here in the Midwest, that's not quite as much of an issue. And so, but you can actually figure out like I'm, you know, here and, and I think this is where a lot of the, um, like, 
uh, smaller farms. This is where one of those things where really big farms get really good at this because they've only got like two crops to manage and really small farms aren't really great at this because it becomes this really complicated thing to do. But it's, it's, you know, with the use of spreadsheets and things, you know, we can set up systems where people can figure these things out a lot better or there's little cheats like a tensiometer is a really great tool for uh, keeping track of where your soil like water field capacity is at how much water is actually out in the field for your plant to access but there's ways too. like i i know that i'm going to get you know x hundred pounds of lettuce off of you know this field area right and so i could actually calculate this is how much water it's going to take to drive that Right. And, and then I can actually use these calculators to know, like, here's the amount of water that I'm going to have to apply during the growing season to actually get that level. Or you can put, do something like put a tensiometer out in the field and that tensiometer is going to constantly measure like how much water is out in the field. And a lot of those tensiometers even come with information about like, if I'm going to grow tomatoes, this is the level I want to see on the tensiometer. And so those are the kind of tools that make irrigation management and those kinds of things so much easier for people to do. But I feel like a lot of them are underutilized. Um, uh, I was talking to Richard Wild from Harmony Valley and he told me something I've told this to a lot of farmers. And he said that, um, you know, for him actually installing, once he had done a lot of other things, he'd gotten his, his soils were healthy and, you know, he'd been irrigating for years. Uh, but you know, when he put a tensiometer out in the field, he said, this changed the way I managed my farm. And he said, and, and you know, in really interesting ways, and especially with onions, um, because onions have really poor root systems. And so he said, you know, I was already watering my onions twice as much as anything else on the farm, but I learned from the tensiometer that I needed to water them twice as much as that. And he said, and it made a huge difference in the amount of poundage of onions he was getting because suddenly those onions were actually getting the right amount of water. And so, you know, so here's this thing at the base of the triangle that looks like this really simple thing, right? It's just water. Uh, we live in the Midwest. It falls out of the sky most of the time. But, you know, really paying attention makes a huge difference in, in, the, in the next one up the, up the ladder on the pyramid. In, it's going to influence the way that the, the way that those plants are able to access the macronutrients in the field. Right. Cause that's, so, that's how the, and you know, and this is that plant physiology piece, right? And we, we said we were going to come back to the plant physiology. I think we're kind of there. Um, yeah. I mean, that's how the nutrients get into the plant as they're flowing in with the water. Right. I mean, the plant, the plant has access, uh, nutrient wise to the things that are like basically in in soil solution, it can do some different things to, to, to change the way the soil solution is set up by basically like excreting acids out of its root system, but really it has access to what's in soil, what's in soil solution. And so there has to be some moisture, you know, in the soil for the plant to even have access to the, to those nutrients. And, and then the, and then what's really interesting about plant physiology though, is what happens to those nutrients, you know, like once they enter into the plant. And so, um, the, the easiest way to think about this is, you know, we have our macronutrients and we have our micronutrients and what is their purpose once they're actually in a plant. So, you know, nitrogen is really important for, you know, plant leaf growth, but also for, um, chlorophyll molecules. Um, every single chlorophyll molecule, you know, which is why when we put more nitrogen on plants, they look more green because chlorophyll reflects this green light. So the more chlorophyll you have in the plant, the more green light gets reflected. 
And every single chlorophyll atom out or molecule out there is a magnesium ion. The, the base of it is a magnesium ion with four nitrogen atoms attached to it. And so, you know, nitrogen is incredibly important for, um, you know, base at that very base level for building the solar panels that are going to harvest the energy for the plant. Um, phosphorus is really important for you know, basically like the energy system of the, of the plant in order. So what you have is, is if you kind of think of it as a factory, you've got the, the nitrogen and the magnesium are building these solar panels. The solar panels are, are harvesting this energy. But then the next thing is, is we have to have a way to take this energy and kind of move it around. So you can kind of think of the ATP, uh, the phosphorus as part of this uh, bigger energy molecule, um, but the phosphorus is like the integral part of this energy molecule. If you don't have enough phosphorus, it can't make enough of this energy molecule, and it's used to kind of shuttle the energy around inside the plant. And so what you end up with is even if you had a plant that was perfectly green and gorgeous, right, if it doesn't have enough phosphorus, it's just sort of like it's, it's like that plant won't reach that next level because plants are really smart. They're always figuring out for themselves, how much energy do I have to use? Um, do I need to put this uh, and, and how do I best use this energy that I have? And plants are, um, plants fruit often too early when they go into some sort of stress response. So I know I use broccoli all the time, but broccoli is a great, um, uh, is a great plant to use as a, as a, uh, to, to show this relationship. So, you know, we had a field once where we went out there and we kind of tilt, we ended up having to do some tillage in wetter conditions early in the spring. And we ended up creating a pretty bad plow pan at about six inches. And we went out and we planted the broccoli. And the, the important thing to know here is that the ability of a plant to take up phosphorus, which is this energy, you know, is highly related to the energy system of the plant, the phosphorus uptake is directly related to root growth because of the way phosphorus moves in the soil system. It doesn't move around a lot. And so the plant basically has to grow to go get it. And when you restrict the root system of a plant, well, obviously it can't keep growing and it can't find more phosphorus. Well, so what these plants did was they had plenty of nitrogen, they had plenty of potassium, but they suddenly ran out of phosphorus. And so they said, oh my gosh, we don't have a way to like keep growing and keep creating more energy and move energy around in ourselves. We're going to have to flower right now. Right, because now this is our last chance to, to stay in the gene pool. Let's, let's get out there and make those, make some babies. Right. And so they buttoned, you know, so we had this whole field of broccoli that buttoned. And the reason it buttoned was, you know, like if you want to trace it all back, it's because we created a plow pan because we tilled it too wet, but it buttoned because it ran out of phosphorus. And so if you don't address phosphorus in a field, your plant, even if it has plenty of nitrogen and potassium, phosphorus becomes the most limiting element. And it's just going to kind of shut, shut down and it's not going to be able to adequately use those other nutrients you have out there. What really gets interesting, though, to me, when we start looking at vegetables and how to think about vegetable fertility is the relationship between what the fruiting body, what is the part that you're going to harvest on the plant and what kind of nutrients is that going to have? And the, and the nutrient that has the biggest effect on this is potassium because um, potassium 
doesn't uh, potassium's role in the plant, one of its main roles is to help with sugar translocation. So now to kind of think about this again, so you got the nitrogen, uh, magnesium chlorophyll complex, it's capturing energy, it's kind of handing that energy off to this phosphorus molecule. The phosphorus molecule interacts with some other things and it basically creates sugar. So you've got sugar created in the leaf of the plant, but that's not where the plant needs the sugar, right? Maybe the, so one place that the plants actually need a lot of sugar is the root system because, and we forget about this because the root system actually doesn't, uh, can't photosynthesize, right? It can't get any energy out of photosynthesis. So it's just like you and me, the root system actually has to burn sugar to keep working. So you got to get, so the plant has to get the sugar down into the root system. And the other place it wants to get the sugar is towards the fruiting body, right? So let's take watermelon. Or, or tomatoes or any of these things with kind of these big fruiting bodies that, you know, get a lot of sugar or potatoes with starch in them. It's important to remember that starch is really just sugars hooked together. Um, what happens is in order to get, in order to get that sugar molecule to move over there, it has to hook it to potassium and the potassium helps carry that sugar to where it needs to go in the plant. But what's really funny about it is once it gets there, it's stuck the potassium can't move again. And so what happens is when we get plants that produce a lot of sweet fruit, highly sugary fruit, and even tomatoes have quite a lot of sugar. Right. um, You end up with these plant parts that become very high in potassium. And this is why when you start looking at these different plant families, you get the, these differences in the potassium needs. See, it start, it kind of starts to make sense when you look at it this way and it gives you a way to, I like thinking this way because it gives you a way to assess on a plant what, you know, even a plant maybe that you're not familiar with or can't find information on, it gives you a way to think about what that plant needs are going to be. I can already tell you, right, that, um, you know, the plant needs for let for potassium for lettuce are not going to be as high as potassium for watermelon. Why? Because I'm not harvesting something that's super full of sugar. Right. And taking that off the field. And so there's this direct relationship between potassium levels and the form of what you're going to take off the field. And then the other thing to also think of is how much of the plant am I removing? This is also really important from sort of a plant physiology point of view. So if you look at like a watermelon crop, what are you, what is it that you're removing? Right. You're just taking the, the watermelon. Right. And so you're taking this thing that's basically a ton of sugar. So I'm taking the potassium off the field, but I've actually left almost all of the nitrogen and phosphorus still there. Right. Everything was, in the leaves and the roots are still hanging around. But... But then if I go and I harvest lettuce and you run into this a lot, I run into this a lot with guys that maybe crop like, uh, you know, get up into that three crops of lettuce off the same piece of ground. Right. People are doing like salad greens and stuff like that. The the mixed mixed salad. Yeah. Um, Like a great way to think about this is I I tell them, you know, that's human hay. You know, that's hay for humans. Right. And it's really interesting (laughs) because... One one of the fastest ways to run a field down um, in in like a, a bigger, you know, like on a dairy farm or something would be to harvest hay off of a field and sell it down the road and then not replace anything that you just, that just left the farm because you're taking the whole plant. So you're taking a lot of nitrogen away. 
you're taking a decent amount of phosphorus off the field and you're removing all this potassium all at the same time. So if I do that three times on a, on a lettuce bed, I can now have removed just as much potassium as I would have removed with a tomato crop. But in addition to that, I removed more phosphorus than I would with a tomato crop and more nitrogen than I would with a tomato crop. And, you know, guys will see this because they might get the first set of salad greens will be really great. Second will be okay. And the third really starts to peter out, you know, and that's because when they get to that third level, they've really, I mean, they have depleted that field of nutrients. And so what they need to be doing is coming in and actually applying nutrients, you know, before that third time or really every time before they start, um, you know, uh, before they start a new seeding. And so just conceptualizing, you know, seeing plants as, you know, one way to think about this is your plants are, you know, that compost that you're going to put out on the field or your plants are the fertilizer that's in that bag. I mean, what's in that bag is literally going to turn into a plant. It's, it's an amazing thing to think about, but then that's going to leave your farm. And this kind of gives you a conceptual way of thinking about, oh, this is where these different nutrients are going. And this is how much of these different nutrients I'm going to be removing. And, and so that's also really great. Like I said, when you run into a crop that maybe you haven't seen or encountered before, because you start thinking, oh, I'm going to start growing Swiss chard. And I, you know, I can't find any nutrient needs for Swiss chard. Well, you know, what's really interesting is you could take some of the very same, you could run a, a, the fertility program for spinach over on the Swiss chard because in effect, you're removing the same thing. Right, right. Or it should so, be, the, and it should be, you know, if, if you're thinking about things the way you're talking about, it, it's probably going to be the same as it is for tot soy or, or even for lettuce. It's going to be really similar because of the, uh, because of the structure of the plant. Exactly. And, and the same thing goes for a lot of root crops, rutabagas, carrots, all these different things. You know, what these all are is basically like, um, you know, those, those, those plants, um, those are starch starches down in the root system. And so, you know, it's really funny. Again, one of the main things that you're going to remove with a, um, with a root crop is, is potassium. Like, you know, you aren't going to take the top a lot of times. Um, or the top isn't like a really, you know, the, the carrot tops do not comprise like a huge amount of the biomass that you're removing. Yeah. There's just not you know, much there. Yeah. For a carrot crop. Um, but you know, you're removing quite a bit of potassium cause that's what, that's what those, you know, there's sugars down there. That's actually, you know, it's, it's really fascinating when you start following the trail down, you know, if you eat a carrot, you know, in the middle of summer, it often doesn't taste real sweet. Right. Right because it's all starchy because the plants just taking all that and it, it's just, it's taking all this energy it's making these sugars it's making and it's linking them up to make starches. Well, your mouth doesn't taste starch. It doesn't taste sweet to us. But if you wait till it gets frosty, then what's happening is the plant is actually taking some of those starches and turning them back into sugars because the sugar acts like a natural antifreeze for the plant that helps it resist getting frozen. And so the plants sudden the carrots suddenly start tasting much sweeter after a frost. So, you know, I just, I like thinking about things like that. Like, Oh, it's really, you know, I'm looking at this carrot and it, you know, I taste it. It doesn't taste sweet, but I know that there's tons of sugar in there because it's going to come out late in the season. And if I know there's a lot of sugar in there, I know there's a lot of potassium. Alan, I, this has been, this has been great. I feel like I've, 
I, I feel like I'm coming away from this. And I say this with, with 25 years in, in, in the farming business, I I'm coming away from this with an understanding that I didn't really have before about, about how all of these, these soil pieces fit together. I, I love how you just broke it down and, and made things really, uh, I think really simple, really easy to understand. So well, thank I'm- you for that. Well, you're welcome. I'm glad you find it helpful. And so if, if somebody wants to get in touch with you or get in touch with Midwest BioAg to get a consultant out to their farm, what's the best way to do that? Um, you can do a couple different things. You can go to the website, which is www.midwesternbioag.com. All one word, all lowercase, no hyphens. Um, you can go there and there's actually a form that you can fill out. Um, you know, under the contact us kind of like called find a consultant and you can submit that and then that'll get passed on to a consultant at your area. We'll have a link for that in the show notes. So if you, if you didn't, okay. if you didn't write down Midwestern bioag, all one word, no hyphen, um, go to the show notes for this episode, which are going to be at farmer to farmer podcast.com slash philo. That's slash P H I L O. And, and we'll have, we'll have all of these links right there to make it easy for you to click on those. So Alan, thank you again for being so generous with your time, your expertise, and your experience. This has really been fantastic. Oh, thank you. It was, it was a great time. Friends, you can head on over to farmertofarmerpodcast.com for links and recaps for this and all of our shows. Thank you so much for listening in today. You can follow us on Facebook on the Purple Pitchfork page there. If you haven't already, please let us know what you think about this show on iTunes. Your reviews really matter to us. Again, today's show was sponsored by Second Cut Media and Purple Pitchfork. Have a great week and keep the tractor running.